Certainly, leaders are pulled in every direction. But perhaps just as common, and maybe more challenging, is when we're pulling ourselves all over the place. On this episode, Parker Palmer on the mindset and the inspiration to stay grounded. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 378. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. You know, we think about leadership, so much of leadership is a journey, it is learning, it is growing each day, uh, for better or worse, and it is about For a lot of us staying grounded, we are pulled in so many different directions as leaders every single day, and it is important for all of us to do what we often do on this show every week, which is to step back for a few minutes and to think about how we stay grounded, not only for our own benefit, but even more importantly, for the benefit of the people we have the privilege to be able to influence each day. Today's guest is someone who has done a tremendous amount of work in so many areas that have been helpful to people in learning, in leadership and teaching over his career, and especially brings a tremendous perspective on how to stay grounded. I am glad to welcome to the show today, Parker Palmer. Parker is founder and senior partner emeritus of the Center for Courage and Renewal, and is a world-renowned writer, speaker, and activist who focuses on issues in education, community, leadership, spirituality, and social change. He has reached millions worldwide through his nine books. He holds a PhD in sociology from the University of California at Berkeley, as well as 11 honorary doctorates, two distinguished achievement awards from the National Educational Press Association, and an award of excellence from the Associated Church Press. And he is the author of the newly published book, On the Brink of Everything, Grace, gravity, and getting old. Parker, I am so glad to welcome you to Coaching for Leaders. Oh, thank you, Dave. It's lovely to be here. Well, you and I were talking a bit before we got started of age. And while your book is about many things and your work is about many things, you talk a lot about age in this new book. You're approaching your 80th birthday. And I was thinking about that in the context of a conversation I had with one of my clients uh, a few years ago. He was, well, he is well into his 70s. And we were talking one day about the topic of relevancy. And he said one of the biggest considerations he has on a daily basis is people still viewing him professionally as though he's still relevant. And I was thinking about that in the context of your work, because you've done so much thinking on this and, and age and And also, you are at the age when many people have made transitions professionally to not doing as much work. And I am just curious today, how do you view age in work? It's a great great question. We live in a culture, of course, where age is, is dissed. People are seen as over the hill. We have all kinds of pejorative phrases that we use to describe out of it elderly people. And obviously, my book, On the Brink of Everything, is, is, is about resisting uh, those self-understandings and self-definitions. 
I'm very interested in your link between age and relevance. And I do understand, I know a number of people who feel as if they are either becoming irrelevant or they are perceived as irrelevant because they're old. And what came to me as you were talking about that, Dave, is that I've done my best. It's been a struggle, but I've done my best over the years to live from the inside out. And I think if you if you live that way, rather than living by external clues that define you or, or box you in or typify you in one way or another, if you live from the inside out, I think you're less likely to feel irrelevant because whatever you're doing is relevant to what I would call the imperatives of the soul or the imperatives of the heart, the, the imperatives of one's identity and integrity. I think the best example I can give you from my work life, I've worked for almost 40 years independently as a writer and as a traveling teacher, giving lectures and workshops, et cetera. And when I go to publish a new book or present it to a publisher, the marketing people always say, who is this book for? Mm-hmm. That's, that's their standard question. That's their stock in trade. And I have always answered from a very young age, it's for whoever buys it. <laughs> I can I, I, And they will say, well, that really isn't helpful, Parker. And I'll say, well, it's the best I can do because I don't write for a particular audience. I can't tell you who I'm aiming this book at. All I can tell you is where this book is coming from inside uh-huh. of me. I've learned, I've figured for a long time, and I've subsequently learned that if I write from the deepest place in me, I'm going to reach that place in some other people. And they turn out to be a wide variety of people that sort of bust open the demographics around uh, what what a a book's audience is supposed to be. So it's a classic, um, I think, example of the Socratic dictum that the unexamined life is not worth living. I, I think we start with examining our own inner imperatives And if we continue to try to operate as best we can from those inner imperatives, rather than being guided by clues from the external world, I don't think the question of relevance comes up with such force and and often debilitating power. Indeed. And so much of our society is framed around those external indicators, our chronological age, how we are viewed in the context of you know, the marketing language, for example, as you point out. When you teach and you are in conversation with people and they are grappling with this for the first time of thinking about living from the inside out, where do you encourage them to start? Mm-hmm. I think the first thing we have to do in, in many cases is to encourage people to examine the fears that many of us have about going inward. There's a reason why things like silence and solitude, which are sort of classic tools of the inner journey, are not popular in our society. And that reason is not external so much. It's not simply that we have a a lot of crowdedness in our lives and a lot of noise in our lives. The reason silence and solitude aren't popular is that people are afraid of what they're going to find if they give themselves those opportunities to be alone for a week, to be quiet for a week. What's going to come up in me 
that I really don't want to look at. And since we all have what Jung, the, the psychologist Jung, called a shadow side, it's often the shadow side that, that comes up when we are quiet long enough to, to hear it, when we're, we're not locked into a screen or something else external long enough to see it. And that, that triggers a wrestling match. We're, we're in a way wrestling at the deepest level with our own demons. And that's something that people don't want to do. So if you start there, if you, if you address the fear that keeps us from going inward, uh, from taking that solitary journey, and you help people work their way through it with the constant encouragement that when we befriend that which we're afraid of in us, it will become our friend. As you know, because I've written about this, um, and I think this may be relevant to some sectors of your audience, I've experienced in my adult life three deep dives into clinical depression. And I've written and talked about that for 30 years because I think it's an important word to put out that this is part of the human experience and it's nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, it can be a goldmine of rich inner learning if you hold it in, in a courageous way. And courage, in my book, means simply turning around to this shadowy figure that's been pursuing you probably for quite a few years and frightening you as you walk away, walk away, walk away and, and refuse to, to look at it to simply stop, to turn around, and ask it a very simple question. What do you want? What do you want to teach me? What do you have for me? What insight could I gain from you? And when you do that, it actually gives that shadow stuff less power over your life. I think people are afraid that if I, if I look it in the eye, it will have more power over me. Mm. You know, like in a Greek myth, I'll be paralyzed and at the mercy of superior forces. But in fact, when you turn around and ask, what's the deal? What am I missing here? You learn things. I, I certainly learned about myself by making that turn. Finally, it took me some time to get there. I learned about myself that I was living at altitude, which is always a dangerous place to live because on a regular basis, we fall down. And if you fall down, when you're living at altitude, you have a long way to fall and it may kill you. If you're on the ground, if you're grounded, to go back to that word, then you can fall down, pick yourself up, dust yourself off and go forward and not be mortally afraid of falling down again. So when I say living at altitude, I mean I was, I was living in the altitude of my intellect. I thought you could solve everything with good ideas. That's not true no matter how much education you have or how high your IQ is. I was living in the altitude defined by ego because we all want to be cool. We all want to do great things. We all want to look good while we're doing them, which is operating not from the imperatives of the soul, but from the imperatives of the ego. I was also operating from all the oughts in life. I ought to be this way. I ought to do this. And oughts don't work very well if they're not yours to deliver on. My counsel always is examine your life and find out what values you represent 
with your in the actual way you live before you try to tell your life what values it should pursue. Uh, you know, our lives have a certain logic to them. And I think part of getting grounded is to keep looking for that logic and that that sort of inner imperative that if that once you start tracking it, you're in a much safer place and I think in the long run a more effective place as well. One of the questions you ask in this book is why do so many well-educated people understand precisely how the material world works but are clueless about their own inner dynamics? And I was thinking about that in the context of what you just said of this desire we all have as humans to look cool and to fit in and to feel like we've got it all figured out. And one of the things that I really am struck by your work and particularly reading this book is how real you are with the struggles you faced, you know, handling depression in your own life. But also you talked about going off and going on, you know, a silent retreat. And you've written about that in this book. And the thing that was really refreshing to me reading about your experience doing that is how much you're struggling with yourself doing this, even though you've been doing this as a practice for many years of like, I forget how you responded to the person who asked, you know, what is that like? And you say, well, it kind of depends who shows up that week, <laughs> right? You mentioned that fear and being able to grapple with that fear of really being able to face ourselves. What has worked for you to begin to go down that path? Well, it, it, it's an interesting question, and I think silence and solitude is part of the answer, but then we get involved in an endless loop, but I'm afraid of silence and solitude, so how do I go there yeah. in order to deal with my fears? But it is a context in which uh, we, we confront things, and basically we find out, I think there are a lot of children's stories along these lines, we find out that what's under the bed isn't as frightening as it seems to be in the middle of the night. Uh, once we meet it and have a conversation with it. I was very influenced when I was around 40 years old by uh, an outward bound trek I took up oh, on yeah. Hurricane Island off the coast of Maine. I was on the edge of depression at that time. I felt I needed something to shake up my life. And since nature at that time was not a big part of who I was or what I was drawn to, I thought, well, outward bound is probably the answer. And, you know, I ended up spending 10 days doing things that I normally would not have done with a gun held to my head or, or pay for which I'd paid a lot of money. But it was enormously good for me. And in, in the middle of one of the most, what for me was one of the scariest exercises on Outward Bound, which was rappelling down a 110 foot cliff, I literally froze. I was paralyzed with fear in the middle of that descent. And I just couldn't move. And I remember the young instructor down below, 50, 60 feet below me, saying, is anything wrong, Parker? And I, this squeaky little, I don't know, you know, preteen voice came up in me and said, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> exactly what I said. It was like, you know, mom had asked you a question and you said, I don't want to talk about it. And I was just so, you know, transparent and vulnerable in my fear at that point. And, and she said, this very able young woman said, well, then it's time for you to learn the outward bound motto. And I thought, oh, Keen, I'm about to die and she's going to get me a motto. <laughs> <laughs> what I want is a helicopter to get me a hell out of here, right? 
So she, she said the outward bound motto is, if you can't get out of it, get into it. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you what happened. That bypassed my rational mind, but those words sort of went directly into my body. They just made incarnational sense. I don't know what else. It's bodily knowledge. Okay, I can't. Nobody's going to haul me up. Nobody's going to lower me down. I, and I started moving my feet, and I made it down. That experience, that, that, that real-world, real-life experience, has informed me about every scary thing I've faced ever since that time. If you can't get out of it, get into it. Because I learned that things like that are negotiable. You do them imperfectly. Um, if you want to do it again, you you know, you, you need more practice and so forth, but they can be done. And I think once you've had that kind of experience, so I think, you know, in a way I don't have, I've, I've never had formula or formulae for anything. I'm not a person who believes, you know, that there are 12 definable steps to happiness or fearlessness or anything else. I've lived, you know, mainly by muddling through and trying to figure things out falling down and getting up, falling down and getting up. But I think one of the things that has to be said about fear is that there is no substitute for walking into things that you're afraid of because you can't get out of them, so get into them. Now, there are some things you can get out of, and if you, if, if you feel strongly called in that direction, you should get out. But there are a lot of things in life that you can't get out of. I mean, every parent knows this. You know, you're your kids are delightful and charming and fun and this great asset in addition to your life until they get to be teenagers. And then they start to scare the daylights out of you. Well, you can't get out of that. So get into it, you Mm -hmm. know, learn what you need to know, have those hard conversations, get help if you need it. When I was reading your book, I happened across a mother podcast and there was a conversation about age in the workplace. And it was a beautiful conversation about how what you and I talked about a bit ago of just this societal belief that, you know, once you hit a certain age, you may not have, you know, may not be as relevant in in the workplace. And the point was made on this business conversation of the importance and the richness and the diversity of having all ages involved in working on problems and in teams. And Something you just said reminded me of one of the points you've made in your work, which is the the importance of mentoring. And one of the things you you write is age and experience have taught me that mentoring is not a one way street. Tell me more about that. Well, as you know, Dave, from the book, I'm a very big fan of deep and meaningful intergenerational relationships. Yeah. And for me, that's that's one of the things that keeps me alive as an elder and keeps me learning as an elder. Those young people that I work with mentor me as much as I mentor them, and, and often more, because they live in a world whose horizon I really can't see from, from where I stand. They know more than I do about what's coming politically, institutionally, relationally, economically, and so forth, because they're in the midst of it. And many of them are innovating and experimenting. I have a wonderful younger friend named Courtney Martin, who wrote a terrific book called The New Better Off, which is aimed at 
your generation of people of whom it said they will they are the first generation in American history who won't be better off than their parents. And she says, well, let's redefine better off because there are upsides to not depending on the old models of affluence that have to do with community, with sharing, with the richness of life. It's a great book that I highly recommend. So for me, those intergenerational relationships are not only inherently life-giving, but they help me live in a world where that same horizon is coming at me, even though I can't see it as clearly as they, they can. So I treat them as my advanced scouts, you know. And just a word to the wise about this, a lot of old people feel, but why would a young person have any interest in me? They, they, they're, doing their own, they're out there doing their own thing. Believe me, one of the best things that can happen for a lot of young people is an older person who takes sincere interest in them. And I want to do for you eventually what a lot of my mentors did for me, which is to see potentials in me that I couldn't see in myself and evoke them in ways that have helped me do what I've done in life. That's a very rewarding role to play. And it is a two-way street. My wife and I attend a church where there is quite a range of ages and especially of an older population within our church community. And I'm, I'm struck by, even within a faith community, how often our relationships are assumed or defined based on ages. And I love your call to us of moving beyond those traditional barriers that I think a lot of us tend to see. And so part of this is changing mindset. One thing I'm I'm curious about, I'm thinking about your friend Courtney and some of the younger professionals that you work with. What if anything have they changed their mindset on or have you done in partnership with them where they changed their thinking where they're able to really learn and receive that mentoring from you? Well, the thing that jumps out at me is how many of them have thanked me and this is, you know, after assistance in the course of a sustained relationship where it's not just a a one-off session, a conversation or something, but it's actually working together. They've said, one of the big things I've learned from you, Parker, is is about patience, is about this simple notion that you can't change the whole world, but you can change what's within three feet of you. And that ultimately that's going to be the most satisfying way to live, that I need to stop straining at the bit stop wrecking my health, stop wrecking my relationships by trying to be the world changer who never was. And I think that older folks who've hung in with whatever can, in fact, teach patience. And I'm not necessarily talking about a professional career, although I've been blessed to have one, but there are grandparents who can teach parents about patience with children and so forth and so on. And so, I think that I have helped some of them understand what it means to be in it for the long haul. And again, there aren't 12 steps to learn how to be in it for the long haul, but there are relationships where you model that and transmit that uh, to one another through human relationship. One of the things that really strikes me from the research 
uh, and now we can talk about something more research-based, is the number of studies that have now been done that, that show that one of the biggest drivers of organizational success is relational trust. It, you know, it's not money, it's not in-service training, it's not governance structures, although all of those things need attention, all of those things are important, all of them need to be tweaked and sometimes totally remodeled. But at the root of everything is relational trust, and that builds on having serious and significant conversations, being vulnerable with one another, the capacity to forgive one another and to ask for forgiveness. It's all kinds of, you know, kind of human life 101 stuff that often gets missed in business schools and other places that purport to teach folks how to run a great organization. And I'm not saying that the knowledge they teach is useless or irrelevant, not at all. It can be very, very helpful. And I know some great business professors and people who've done great work because of those professors. But we, we have to keep our eye on the prize. And I think the prize always is, what's going on between you and me that either makes something work or doesn't make it work? And extend that network to everybody we work with. And how much are we valuing and investing in the building of relational trust without which we really, really don't have much? I'm, I'm very much with you on that. You know, a lot of our institutions, very well intended, but don't necessarily do a very good job of teaching this and modeling it. And you mentioned, I believe a moment ago, modeling and, and modeling this for others. And in that spirit, I'm curious, you learned this somewhere along the way as well to do this so brilliantly. Who modeled this for you and what did you learn from them? Well, that's a story that warms my heart because I think my first teacher in that regard was my father. Just to tell that story very quickly, my dad was a blue collar kid from Waterloo, Iowa. His father, my grandfather, made, was a machine tool operator who made parts for John Deere tractors. So at age 19 or 20, my dad comes to Chicago in the middle of the Depression. He stands in long lines, finally picks up a temporary two-week bookkeeping job with a company that sold Syracuse, China, and Reed and Barton silverware for commercial use, hotels, restaurants, railroads, later airlines. And 60 years later, he's owner and chairman of the board of that same company. And oh, it was wow. one of those stories. He'd he had nothing but a high school diploma. I was the first person in my family to go to college. And one of the things I'm proudest of about my dad is that he ran his company with a sense of um, obligation to the larger society, a society that had given him a leg up, and he wanted to use his company to help other people get a leg up who weren't necessarily the best and the brightest but, or, the, or, or had the greatest credentials but whom he saw as worthy and teachable. And I think he was a teacher at, at heart. So dad taught me a number of lessons. And one of them was that it w went like this. He, he would sit me down. Well, I think it was a kind of annual <laughs> chat we had. And he would say, Park, someday I, I will, I'll sell this company. And part of what I'll sell on one side of the ledger book will be all of the material goods that you're acquainted with because you've worked in my warehouse, you've been in my showroom, you know, you've seen the trucks and all of that, those boxes of China and silverware. 
and you know what the physical stuff looks like, and that will have a certain dollar value. But he said, on the other side of this ledger, this sales sheet, as it were, will be quite a different item. And he says, this is a technical term that accountants use. It's called goodwill. And he said, that item, goodwill, I'm working to make that item as valuable when I come to sell this company as all the material and physical stuff. Mm. And I've never forgotten that lesson. So I don't, I don't run a business except my own, you know, independent work as a writer and traveling teacher. And in that sense, I'm a small businessman. But I've never forgotten that I'm not just selling books or talks or ideas. I'm in the business of building goodwill because it repays many times over, not only in monetary terms, but especially in terms of feeling at home in my own skin and feeling at home in a wide network of relationships and feeling at home on the face of the earth, which I think are some of the deepest desires that drive us as, as human beings. You know, a good checklist is if you don't feel at home in your own skin, if you don't feel at home in most of your relationships, if you don't feel at home on the face of the earth, it's time to follow that Socratic dictum that the unexamined life is not worth living. Take that inward journey, find out what's going on, and work on it. Many people, especially today, uh, call you a teacher, and yet I suspect, having followed your work, that you consider yourself more so a student of the world and a student of learning. And as a student, one of the questions I often ask our guests is, what have you changed your mind on? And I'm curious for you, Parker, in the past few years, um, especially in this most recent work and research, what have you changed your mind on? Yeah, well, you're, you're absolutely right, Dave, about the learner thing. I, as you know, I say in the book, when people ask me, why did you become a writer or why do you do this, this kind of teaching? And I'll say, because I was born baffled. You know, I, I came, I think I came out of the womb, they slapped me into breathing and I looked around and I said, what the heck is this all about? And I've been <laughs> asking myself that question ever since. So I think we've probably touched on the thing that I've changed my mind most about slow evolution over the years. Well, two things really. One is that you can't change the world, but you can change what's within three feet of you. Over the years, not just now at nearly age 80, but over the years, slowly, slowly, I've understood, do what's within reach of you, Parker, and don't strain at gnats and break your heart and your back over things that just aren't in the cards. Learn yourself, learn what you have, learn how to play your own instrument and then learn to play it as well as you possibly can, rather than trying to be the whole orchestra and so forth. So there's that. And another thing that, I've, that I keep learning is about facing into the shadow. The, the shadow never goes away. It arises in, in, in different ways, in different situations. And I think I've become at least a little better. Um, for example, when I feel signs of impending depression. I'm better at picking up those signs. I'm better at getting proactive about them. And by which I mean taking a close look at my life and asking myself, where is that feeling coming from? 
you know, if I have it at eight o'clock this morning, my desire is by 8.05 to be asking myself that question. And I'm, I'm usually able to find an answer. Okay, it's, it's a truth that I need to speak that has gone unspoken. It's a relationship that I've messed up that needs to be righted where I need to ask for forgiveness. It's a job I took on that I'm really not qualified to do or really not interested in doing. I just took it on because. And if I can ask that question by 8.05 or 8.30 or 9 a.m. or even noon, I'm much more likely to be able to get proactive about straightening out whatever it is that has me on, on the downward skids. There's a lot of poetry in this book, uh, beautiful poetry, yours and the work of others. And one of the poems that really struck me is a poem by Rumi called The Guest House. And I'm wondering if, as we close, you would be willing to share the poem with us. Thanks, Dave. I think that's the perfect choice, The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Parker, I think about the story that you told of your dad and the accounting ledger and the term that many of us heard in accounting called goodwill. And I am so grateful to you in all you have done in your work to share that goodwill and to grow that goodwill for so many of us. Thank you so much for being a leader in your work. And of course, as we talked about, of being a student as well. Well, thank you, Dave. And back at you about the goodwill thing. You build a lot of it too. Parker Palmer is the author of On the Brink of Everything, Grace, Gravity, and Getting Old. Thank you, Parker. Whenever I'm preparing for conversations to have here on the show, I am often diving into the books of our guests, as I did with Parker's book, and thinking about the emerging conversation and what kinds of things we'll discuss. And uh, when I'm able to read on Kindle, which I try to do since it's my preferred method of reading, I capture all my highlights digitally through their system and then include them on the free membership portal. I've done that with Parker's book and many others. So if you haven't already activated your membership by going to coachingforleaders.com, please do so. You'll get access not only to the highlights of everything that I found that was of interest to me when I read through Parker's work, but also all of the past highlights on the book notes button on the website. So find that both in the show notes, the link there. You can activate that by just uh, setting up your free membership if you haven't already. And if for those of you who have a free membership, just click on the book notes button. There you'll see all of the notes from all of the 
recent books that I've been able to review. And in addition, you'll be able to track down some of the related episodes to today's conversation with Parker. I would recommend episode 232 if you found today's conversation helpful. On that episode, I welcome Tara Moore. The topic was how to manage your inner critic. We talked a little bit about this in today's conversation. Tara and I did a deep dive on that topic specifically, talked about how she works with clients in order to help them to name and recognize their inner critics and also to help to navigate around them. She has so many helpful tactics on that episode of how you even give your inner critic a character, start to think about what are the common things you hear from them. I've had so many people reach out to me that have mentioned over the years that that episode was really helpful. Uh, So again, that's episode 232. Also of value to you will be episode 308, The Power of Solitude. Mike Irwin was my guest on that episode. We talked about the importance as leaders of stepping away and making time to be able to sometimes do deep work, as Cal Newport has talked about when he's been on the show, but more importantly, perhaps, of just having time to stop and to give a space and to think. And we talked about that a bit in today's conversation. If that inspired you to potentially do a bit more of that, episode 308 is a great place for you to dive in. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 363, The Path of Humble Leadership. Edgar Schein and Peter Schein were my guests on that episode. We talked about humility and curiosity in the work of leaders and organizations. You heard so many echoes of that in our conversation today with Parker. If you want to dive into that in more detail, go over to episode 363, The Path of Humble Leadership. And as I mentioned, you can get access to all of those past episodes just by going over to coachingforleaders.com slash podcast. And if you have a free membership already set up, it'll give you a chance to search by topic. If you don't have a free membership set up, it'll give you a chance to do that. And then you'll be in on the podcast episodes, all of them since 2011, the book notes, my weekly leadership guide, the free audio course, and a whole bunch more that's there. So check it out at coachingforleaders.com. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Bonnie back to the show. It is our monthly Q&A show. We are going to do it, actually, the first Monday of this coming month. Uh, You got a little off schedule last month, but we have lots of questions to respond to. So if you have a question, not too late to get it in for consideration, go to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback, either for this coming Monday show or the first Monday of every month when we respond to questions. Have a fabulous week and see you next week with Bonnie. Take care.